Hi, I'm Emily Astor. Hi, my name is George the Poet. Hi, I'm Angela Duckworth. Hi, I'm Linda Darling-Hammond. I'm Todd Rose, and I am the co-founder and president of a Boston-based think tank called Populous. I'm president of the Learning Policy Institute. I'm also a psychologist, a former teacher. I'm a spoken word artist. Professor of economics at Brown University and author of Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. Hi, this is Greg Bear, along with Ryan Rudzeski, and we're the co-hosts of the Remaking Tomorrow podcast. And we'll have a new episode of our podcast coming for you soon. Until then, we encourage you to find and listen to the Remaking Tomorrow podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find over 60 past episodes that you can browse and listen to whenever you'd like, including this conversation with Angela Duckworth, the author of Grit, originally released in season three. So we hope you enjoy this rebroadcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rudzeski, here with Greg Baer. We're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Angela Duckworth, an author, educator, and co-founder of Character Lab, a nonprofit advancing the scientific insights that help children thrive. A professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, Duckworth's 2016 book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, became an instant bestseller, and her TED Talk on the topic is among the most viewed of all time. Angela, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. I'm so excited for this conversation. Well, we are too. And let's start with the obvious, grit. Before we get into what it is, take us back to how you first got interested in this subject. What was the question you were trying to answer that led you to eventually develop the concept? All my life, I've been wondering about why or how some people do what they do so well, you know, and it can be anything like sometimes I see a really great bus driver or I, I actually live on this city block where the crossing guard for the kids during the school year, he's fantastic. I literally have a better day when I walk by him. He smiles, he's joking, he's totally conscientious, the kids love him. And I've wondered to myself as a psychologist, but probably even as a little girl, how do people get so good at what they do? And is it the same for chess players and crossing guards and mathematicians and artists and CEOs? And I think I've come to some ideas that's different from talent. These excellent individuals, are really persistent over long periods. They, they keep trying to get better at one thing and one thing that they love, that they really intrinsically care about. They're not doing it because somebody's paying them or forcing them. So it's perseverance, but also passion for long-term goals. And that's how I define grit. You know, that reminds us of a favorite quote of Fred Rogers that says, the, uh, the greatest teacher in the world is someone who loves what he or she does and just loves it in front of you. I'm not the Rogers scholar that you two are, but prior to reading your outstanding book, I was a, a sort of a novice Mr. Rogers fan, I guess, and I read some of his writing and I read a little bit of his biography. And I have to say that the idea of being passionate and persevering for something that you know you devote your life to, I, I can't think of a better exemplar than Mr. Rogers. 
There you have it, Mr. Rogers, the gritty Mr. Rogers. <laughs> yes. Angela, can you tell us a little bit about what grit is? What does it help us do? Can you tell us a little bit about maybe what grit is and what grit isn't? Yeah, I'll tell you what I think grit looks like maybe, and that can be helpful. So for example, I had the good fortune of uh, talking to Olympic coaches and other coaches that are at the elite level, so professional basketball or, or football. And a picture of grit would be somebody, for example, an athlete shows up early to practice. So practice is at eight, but they're there at 7.56 and they stay a little longer. So coach says, we're good, blows the whistle. Everyone hurries to the locker room for their hot shower. And that person's still on the field, on the pitch, like a few more passes, a few more kicks. And then the whole practice, and this is actually the words of a particular Olympic diving coach, like eyes like saucers. They're just learning, soaking up feedback, trying to figure out, okay, this is what happened the last time I kicked this ball. Like, I'm going to make this adjustment. And you do that again and again. You show up early, stay late. You really try and are open and learning over and over again in a way that is very consistent over long stretches. That's a portrait of grit. And what grit isn't? And I think that's a great question to be asking. I think it isn't doing something because you feel this weight of like, for example, what your parents expect you to do. You know, I grew up in a, a family, I'm sure many people, you know, identify with this, where there was a pressure, explicit, you are going to go to medical school message that was delivered, honestly, to all of the kids. And I was no exception. And I think what grit is not is going to medical school and studying really hard for organic chemistry because you have this obligation and it feels very external to you. So this is what psychologists sometimes call external or extrinsic motivation. And what I find in my research is that grit is much more strongly correlated positively with intrinsic motivation. I'm doing this because I care about it. I'm doing this because it's interesting to me. And in fact, I find that grit is negatively correlated with external or extrinsic motivation. Like I'm getting paid a lot. I'll have other people think better of me because I'm doing this. Let me ask a question that so many dads like us or teachers or those coaches are asking, where does grit come from? And can we, can our kids become grittier or even help others become grittier? One of the things I really loved about your book was that you're really talking about like how to raise creative, curious, caring kids. And I think broadly speaking, creativity, curiosity, caring for other people, grit, delay of gratification, all of these things to me are both nature and nurture. I am particularly interested in the nurture part, what we can do in the roles that we have as the grown-ups in the lives of children to enable them to develop these things. But I do want to just say that everything that we just talked about, they all have a genetic component. So so parents should know that their children have DNA that came from their biological mother and their biological father, and that does tilt things in a particular direction. At the same time, I rush to say that there's nothing that a parent or a psychologist might care about that isn't also profoundly influenced by nurture, by what we say to our children, by the role models that we provide for them as ourselves, but also the teachers they have, the neighborhood they grow up in. I think that to me is the maybe new insight from psychology and from neuroscience in the last couple of decades. When I went to college, I was a neurobiology major, and I was taught that, you know, in many ways, there's not a lot of 
real plasticity in the brain and there's not a lot of change in personality after let's say you know adolescence maybe you know your early 20s and i know we're talking about children but i just want to emphasize that the new science on human development emphasizes or clearly shows that we have more plasticity more potential for growth throughout the entire lifespan so it's not only children who can become more creative and curious and caring and gritty but also all of us grown-ups have the potential to change in ways that we want to, if we want to. Angela, I want to take this idea of nature and nurture and add another layer to it. You've said that one thing you've become really interested in over the past few years are the environmental factors that influence grit. In other words, it's not just how gritty an individual is, but also the degree to which his or her environment provides opportunities and, and challenges and support. Can you tell us more about that, what you're learning about the context of learning in schools particularly? How can learning in schools support or perhaps erode a student's grit? When you ask the question, you know, why is this young person reading books at night and this other young person who sits right next to them, like they're not reading anything. And you might think like, oh, well, one is a curious child and the other one is not a curious child. But it may not be that. It may be that one child has books at home and the other one doesn't. It may be something a little more subtle, like there's no ability to read because the TV's always blaring or there's fighting going on. And these are not made up stories. These are real stories of young people that I've taught and also young people that I've studied as a psychologist. In the most compelling research that I've done, you know, the, the thing that really wakes me up in the morning and says like, let's get to it, like let's try to understand what's going on here. I've been fascinated and I guess disturbed by how uneven the playing field is for young people. You know, there's research that's not done by me, but by economists like Eric Hanushek at Stanford, showing that having a really good teacher twice in a row can set you on a trajectory that is amazing. But at the same time, having a really poor teacher twice in a row can send you on a completely different life trajectory. So in sum, I think when we ask the question, hey, is this kid curious? Are they gritty? You know, we, of course, look at the kid and we leap to assumptions. But I think if we are wise, then we then pause and we say, what else could be going on? Is it only that they are or are not curious or gritty? Could it also be something in their classroom, in the life that they lead outside the classroom? You know, I've done research on something called a life events checklist. It's a a list of negative life events that may have happened to you in the last six months or a year. And when students fill this out, they say, yes or no, I uh, have a family where there's a lot of fighting in the home, more than usual. I've seen somebody shot or really in danger in the last six months or a year. These are the sorts of things on the life experiences checklist. And I will tell you that, uh, first of all, what we find is that, that the number of life events in the life of a child, this is outside of the classroom, they have a reliable statistic significant effect on that child's behavior in the classroom. And we further find in our research that teachers don't know. So you have a kid who's kind of not doing anything you want that kid to do, and you can't see all the things that are going on in the life of that child. So I guess in some, you know, there is this expression that's um, misattributed actually to Plato, but be kind to all you meet for each carries their own heavy burden. It's a very, you know, wise bit of advice for us adults who, you know, speaking for myself, can be frustrated, can be kind of like bemused when young people are, are not doing what I think is in their own interest and also in the interest of other people. We so appreciate that wisdom. And it echoes, again, of Fred Rogers, 
who talked about the noticing and the wondering and the doing in kids' lives, the work of caring adults to create those atmospheres of learning and growth for our young people. Your work just resonates so deeply with that. Your book came out in 2016. It was a huge phenomenon, still is. And you've advised Olympic coaches, the World Bank, Fortune 500 companies, and you've also seen schools and individual teachers take your work and do things with it. Are there a couple examples of which you're particularly proud, the ways in which those educators and others have taken your work and done things in this world? Well, I like to start with where I don't think it should go, if that's okay. I know that's a little negative, but you know, educators that I really admire and appreciate, they had read Grit and they were, you know, I think previously convinced that young people need to learn to find something that they love and to work very hard at it. Didn't disagree with that at all. But then they wanted to have like grit pep rallies all around increasing standardized test scores at the school, like a whole week of pep rallies. And I wasn't in principle against kids trying to do better on these required standardized tests. But I thought like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about a kid falling in love with a subject in school or a sport or a musical instrument or I don't know, anything. And then trying to get better at it and learning how to get feedback and find uh, ways to have conversations with people who know more about them and becoming hard workers and developing mindsets that enable them to be resilient, but not to do this externally motivated thing that to be honest, I've literally never met a kid who is passionate about increasing their own standardized test scores. So I think that's one example of how even a well-intentioned and wonderful educator or parent can misread at least what I think the message of grit is. Likewise, I think parents who say, I'm going to buy your book because I want my kid to play even more piano. I'm like, do you have a kid who wants to play piano? That's my first question. Like, Sounds like you want them to play piano, but I don't think that's the same thing. Now on the bright side, let me just say that there is a school network that's called Expeditionary Learning. And Ron Berger is the longtime chief academic officer. And I think they get so much right. And I want to say, I don't think it's because of my book. This school system is all based around the idea that kids are not learning as individuals. They're part of what they call crew. So it's a very kind of social versus individual centered way of teaching that the projects these kids get to do for academic credit are not like, hey, I hope you do better on this test than other kids, but more like, hey, why don't you solve this problem in the community? You and your classmates are going to be together in a crew doing that. And they emphasize elements of character beyond grit, like empathy in particular. But yes, they do emphasize grit as well. So I just think there are examples in the world of schools, of sports teams, of music teachers, of families that I think get a lot right when it comes to raising kids to be happy and healthy. I don't want to take any credit for any of that, but I, I do hope one thing. I'm having this conversation with you for the same reason I wrote my book and maybe the same reason in part that you wrote your book, which is that I think having a better understanding of these things that we care about for our kids, a better understanding of what it really means to be creative or curious or gritty, that that helps us as adults do what we want to do even better. That's right. We can be a little bit more intentional and a little bit more deliberate. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Angela Duckworth, a psychology professor, the author of Grit, and the Character Lab's co-founder and chief scientist. Angela, you founded Character Lab in 2013 with two educators, Dave Levin and Dominic Randolph. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that collaboration? How did you meet? What prompted you to launch a nonprofit? And what does Character Lab do? I was a either a graduate student or maybe I just finished my PhD and these two educators had taken the train down from New York City where they lived to Philadelphia which is where I was in graduate school at, at University of Pennsylvania and they were not coming on the train to see me they were coming to see Marty Seligman who was my very famous advisor now I guess is my very famous colleague because I'm a professor now at Penn and they wanted to get the answer to a very simple question, which is what can psychological science tell grown-ups like teachers that will help young people live better lives? And they thought maybe, I guess, they would get the answer and go back on the train, but it turned out to be a longer journey than that because nobody really has a straightforward answer I think there are things that we know, and Marty tried to share some of them, and there are things that we don't know. And that's why Dave and Dominic and I, who met on that occasion, we said, let's start a nonprofit called Character Lab. We named it Character after both what Martin Luther King said about education, that character plus intelligence are the true goals of education. And also uh, perhaps after Aristotle, who said that the good life, you know, the well-lived life is a life not just of achievement or fame or pleasure, but also of character. So we called this nonprofit Character Lab and we said, look, we don't know the specifics, but directionally, there has to be something in the intersection, in the overlap between education and parenting, and also modern behavioral science of the kind that I was in graduate school to learn how to do. Fast forward to today, 2022, what we primarily do as a nonprofit is we facilitate research on healthy adolescent development. And we do this on behalf of scientists at University of Pittsburgh, like Brian Gala, but also Stanford University, you know, think Carol Dweck, or, you know, we recently ran a study for professors at Harvard Business School. So we try to attract the best scientists in the world to do research on healthy adolescent development hoping to yield insights that then can be shared with all of us grown-ups, so that in the life of every young person, everywhere, anywhere, they have a psychologically wise adult, an adult who really understands motivation and emotion, curiosity, and everything that you, know, you and I have both written about. Angela, we're in a moment now where parents and educators are making all sorts of big decisions. And so many of us look to you to make sense of things, and deservedly so. So Angela, how do you think teaching and learning might be redesigned as we head toward a post-pandemic future? I don't have all the answers, and I will tell you that it's important to know what you know. I think it's even more important to have a guess at what you don't know. And I think policy and practice are so complex, and I just want to be appropriately humble about that. But I will say as a psychologist, you know, something that I hope for, I think that kids are so smart, and they're so much smarter when they're actually curious about what they're learning. I think about it with myself, you know, when my husband's telling me something that's, you know, just not interesting to me. Wait, what? Say it again. And like the fourth time, he's like, I think maybe we should stop talking about this because you clearly don't care. But when kids are curious and they're interested. I mean, there's great modern neuroscience research on this by Matthias Gruber and others. They're literally smarter. They learn better. They remember more. So I wonder whether education, when you think about a young person, like getting up in the morning to go to school, are they excited because they're going to learn something they're interested in? 
or are they dreading having to sit through seven or eight hours of what they don't care about? And I don't want to be ridiculously idealistic and say kids don't have to memorize their times tables or learn how to do grammar or struggle through problem sets that are maybe not the thing that they want to do because they'd rather be on Netflix. I'm not that naive, but I at the same time think we do a pretty horrible job of tapping the curiosity that every child is brought into the world with. There are no uncurious babies, like not a one. They all wanna learn. And everybody is capable of being deeply curious about something. So can we take this kind of factory model that hasn't changed in education for you know 100 plus years, 200 plus years, and actually ask the question, what can we do to unlock, to tap this enormous intellectual engine that every child is born with? Angela, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? I would love people not to buy my book, but actually to go to characterlab.org. It's the website where we help the scientists whose work we facilitate share those insights. We ask them to write a tip every week for parents in particular, and also teachers. And we ask them to translate their scientific insight into actionable advice for these grownups who care so much for the kids in their lives. And it's 100% nonprofit. There's no advertising. We're very grateful to have philanthropic support from foundations and individuals. And so I would love to see parents there and maybe sign up for our newsletter and interact with us in other ways. Angela, before we go, and we don't wanna go, but we have just one more question for you. <laughs> What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I think one thing we can do is close caption our role modeling. So let me unpack that. The single most important thing that any grown-up does in the life of a child is to provide a positive role model. You know, I once said to my kids, well, I'm so glad I've raised you to be kind. And then they were teenagers at this point. They were very quick to point out several occasions on which mom was not kind. You know, not kind to the telemarketer who called during dinner, not called when we stayed in that hotel and our room hadn't been cleaned up. You know, they pointed out instances of unkindness and I thought to myself, huh, I have room to grow as a role model. If I want my children to be kind or gritty or curious, I need to show them that that's what I am doing. That's the single most important thing. But I wanted to say something about the closed captioning because there's new research by Julia Leonard, an amazing developmental psychologist at Yale. And it shows that in addition to modeling, a very powerful kind of accelerant, if you will, is when you close caption your role modeling. So the next time you do something and you're trying to teach your daughter or your son kindness, for example, you know, you bake banana bread and you bring it in to their preschool. I remember doing this myself. You know, I thought, great, I'm modeling for my daughters how to be a little bit generous, right? You know, take a little bit of your time, a little bit of your money and do something for somebody that you're grateful to. But what I could have done is what this research shows, which I could have said, Amanda, Lucy, we're bringing banana bread to your teacher because she is so wonderful. And this is what kindness is. This is what it means to be generous. And I'm hoping that we can find more ways to do it. Thanks again to Angela Duckworth, the co-founder and chief scientist for Character Lab and the author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.